Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional, and those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. The pandemic has put a lot of strain on everyday Americans in a host of ways, uh, many of them financial, including job loss, riskier work for the same or even reduced pay, and a myriad of financial hardships. Today's guest believes that employers have a duty to be courageous about financial inclusion and to do whatever they can to help employees manage their money, credit, and debt as part of their voluntary benefits package. She suggests that employers need more than thought leadership, they need action leadership. We are pleased to have with us today Anita Ward, Chief Development Officer at Salary Finance, a global provider of financial education and salary-linked savings and loans for employees. Anita is a cultural anthropologist whose career has been dedicated to culture, behavior, and the growth and transformation of organizations. She has led growth, development, and technology in organizations that include Chase, American General, Safe Light, Autoglass, Occidental Petroleum, and the Cleveland Clinic, Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health. Before recently joining Salary Finance, she was president of Operation Hope, a nonprofit that she streamlined and expanded. And finally, if you like today's episode, please consider signing up for our online educational experience called HR Now, an HR Daily Advisor virtual event being held on September 30th. Anita will be hosting a roundtable during that event called Why Financial Inclusion Belongs on Your DNI Agenda. There is a link to the event in the description. Thank you so much, Anita, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's an important topic, so I appreciate being able to lend my voice to this. Um, I think we just want to get started off by how would you define uh, thought leadership? So first, I want to make sure that I, it doesn't sound pejorative. I don't want you to misunderstand <laughs> because I think thought leadership is really important. It's just not enough. Um, in fact, I was a thought leader. I, I consider myself a thought leader in many ways. There are not too many cultural anthropologists who do their field work in organizations like Occidental or, or in technology. So in many ways, I'm a thought leader. And so thought leaders tend to be change agents or inspirational leaders, and you can see them rallying the troops. So they provide I don't know, strategic architecture. I, I like to think of myself as more of a Sherpa <laughs> for the team. <laughs> um, so thought leaders are influencers, which sounds really great. And it is really great. But I don't think it's enough right now. And the way I look at thought leadership isn't, you know, sort of an adjective and a noun <laughs> describing what's leadership. I look at it in, from the perspective and through the lens of the two verbs it represents. So thinking and leading. And you're not going to get to the point of creating change if all you're doing is thinking. So in my opinion, to be an effective thought leader, you have to lead and real thought leaders act. So you introduced me as this cultural anthropologist and I've been influenced largely by the social sciences and philosophy. So some of what I'm going to say around thought leadership, it may or may not be intuitive, but uh, if you can't tell Jim, I'm, I'm also kind of a geek. So uh, <laughs> when, I, when I think about the, what I think of is like the greatest thought leader anywhere and sort of the largest thought leader in our lives, 
is it's Aristotle. Now, I know you don't want to have a podcast with HR leaders and have them think, oh my God, this anthropologist is on this call talking about Greek philosophers. This <laughs> is doesn't apply at all. But if you bear with me, I, I think I can make the argument that um, Aristotle took this really interesting position around leadership. And uh, he wrote about it in Poetics. I forget which part, but I suspect it has something to do with plot. And what he does is he shares this really unique distinction between thought, character, and action. Now, uh, pick up any leadership book in the world, and you're going to see a discussion around thought, character, and action. And he, he argues that ultimately, life is only about action. And it's the action that reaffirms your character, and it's your action that drives your thought. And so I think about if the greatest thought leader of all time, Aristotle, is defining thought leadership as action, then why shouldn't I listen a little bit more objectively to what he's saying? And hoping that you would bear with me on this one, I did pull a quote. So here's what he says. I love this. He says, thought and character are the two natural causes from which actions spring. And on actions, again, all success or failure depends. Life consists in action, and its end is a mode of action, not a quality. So I took all of this, crazy anthropologist that I am, I took all of this to heart. I thought there's a cultural component, there's a character component, and thinking is lovely. And I often fantasize, I will tell you, Jim, about just, you know, checking out and buying some little house somewhere hidden in the country and write and think all the time. But then Mm, I'd become frustrated, right? I, I, I would love that. It's a romanticism at its best. But we as leaders and as humans, I think, have the responsibility to lean in and to act because that's really what defines our humanity. So if the greatest thought leader of all time could say he was inadequate if he didn't act, then who am I to argue with Aristotle, right? And (laughs) that's really what started to shape my thinking about the differences between thought leadership and action leadership, because it really becomes this dynamic of thinking, acting, thinking, and it all gets driven, I think, by the character and values of the leader and the culture of the organization. So that's my framework for it. I I believe that thought leadership taps into the organizational mindset, but that the action leadership taps into purpose and character and kind of the soul. And you need both. But if you only have thought leadership, nothing's going to get done. And if you only have action leadership, the right things might not get done. So it's this lovely dynamic dance between thought and action that are seemingly inextricably linked. Uh, But there are some, you know, beautiful, wonderful thought leaders who actually know how to act. And it's that's that what I want to challenge people to step up into. You know, I've always looked very carefully at the way that, um, well, that thought leaders and also I'm going to group in with them. Uh, and I apologize. Uh, Academics. M- motive. Well, I was going to say motivational <laughs> oh, speakers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, because 
you know, there's so many huge issues at play in all of our lives all the time, and they're overwhelming and difficult to know what can you do about it. And the answer is, is almost always some, you can do a little something, but it can be hard to know what that is. And so it's easy to turn to someone that seems to have their stuff figured out, listen to them talk and get motivated. Um, and I, I find that sometimes when you do that, that takes the place of action. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like when you drive by somebody on the side of the road that needs help, and then you think about how great it would have been to have helped them. And that makes you feel good, even though you didn't help them. And they're still there on the side of the road somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it's this feature of, of humanity to to find you know, when you find something that, that you don't feel like you know what to do about it, to go find someone that does know and then listen to them. And for everyday people, I think that's fine. But HR people have a unique position to truly impact the lives of many people. And across the whole country, HR people, I would say maybe even more than leaders, um, have the ability to impact large percentages of the population. And so they have a pretty heavy responsibility. I couldn't agree with you more because HR leaders are put in a position of both empathy and culture. And as you set this up at the beginning, when you described the reaction, the initial reaction to COVID, HR leaders also have a responsibility to the bottom line. So they live along this continuum of the greater good and the organizational good, and in some organizations, those don't actually intersect, which mm-hmm. fascinates me also. So when we approach uh, an opportunity, I think of it as an opportunity, to drive change from an HR perspective, then we are looking at it along this continuum, but not irresponsibly focusing on just the bottom line, but knowing that if we lean in around people, and organizations and behavior and in many ways sort of the common good then in fact we know will impact the bottom line but you got to go with us on this trip to get there so in some ways it requires um, business leaders line of business leaders PL leaders to buy in and trust their hr leaders to take them on that journey now historically that hasn't happened you know there mm. have been a handful that um that I know of where the HR leader has really positioned uh, him or herself right beside the CEO. And those are great CEOs who recognize that. But historically, that hasn't been the case with HR. However, I think that COVID and the pandemic and the, um, the focus now, the renewed and important focus on DEI, all of that has has driven the need for HR leaders who can step up and lean in around this. So I think many times HR had been put in a place of sort of thought leadership and yes, go, you know, take care of payroll and the transactional pieces. And now the role has become much more strategic and much more important. I think as we try to find our way into this new normal. Yeah, I think I I agree. I mean, it's such an interesting time because so many people got immediately divided into a few different groups rapidly. So you had a bunch of people got fired across the country. Right. 
um, in the first few weeks of the coronavirus uh, once it was recognized for what it was. And then you had a group of people that had to keep working. And we saw this uh, sort of renaissance in thought about how we look at certain jobs. You know, um, traditionally, a grocery store job was not considered essential. I don't know. Yeah, it's certainly not essential, (laughs) but it is. And we were all kind of confronted with the people that are really putting together the basic needs of our lives. And then there was another group of people that got to work from home. And I'm sure there's a couple couple other groups out there, but I mean, it was really the lines came down, the walls came down hard on those spots. And what we talk about a lot from, because we talk about employers, we can't really talk about the people that got unemployed um, because employers don't have much of a role to play in their lives, which is unfortunate because that's a large percentage of the population. And it's hard for us to talk about essential employees the same way we talk about work from home employees. You know, I work an office job. A lot of people work office jobs and that represents a large percentage of the population. So a lot of those people were able to go remote and it's just very interesting and also very difficult to parse these sort of two different groups because they're being handled very differently, right? Yeah, I think all three of them, and I think our risk, our potential risk is that it starts to create almost class distinctions in the handle. Yeah, and absolutely. And disrupts the cultural pieces. So even at Salary Finance, we had a long discussion and actually opened it up to everybody on our team to talk through. So all of the employees fed in their opinions about whether we ever go back to having an office. Could everybody? So theoretically, we have all been home. Not theoretically, actually, we have all been home since March. And so we have proven that our teams can work remotely. We, the, the balls haven't been dropped. In our case, lending still pursues. Financial well-being and curriculum are all online. So we have been able to, to successfully still produce services and technology remotely. And so if we've proven the model, then why do we have to go, why does anybody have to go back in? And then it becomes a question of who needs to be together. So it's not just a question of, can you work remotely? But then some of the rationale that sits behind it is, well, maybe customer service should all be together in an office. Well, I've been Mm. in technology for a pretty long time. And I'm telling you the first things that went remote were customer service, right? So (laughs) there's no reason (laughs) to do that. But it starts almost to to feel classist that, some people have to be in an office, but other more elite people maybe don't have to be in an office. So I think it's a, a very important dynamic that we might see and have to wrestle with from an HR perspective. Um, uh, and how, you know, how do we do this? And can we do this? And, uh, and well, I'm really fortunate because salary finance only has a couple hundred people. Um, I feel for those HR leaders who have to now teach giants to dance. You know, how, how do you become flexible? And I, I think it's sad that it took a pandemic, a global pandemic to cause us to think about how do we pivot and how do we become flexible organizations? But I, I think the challenge for HR is really going to be 
Uh, how do you create these new models of work from home, still preserving cultural um, distinctions and values and uh, communication methods and inclusion? Uh, you know, what does inclusion look like in a remote world? Uh, and empathy and compassion, all of those human needs that we have, and yet recognizing that in some ways, this new balance is lovely, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. I have never worked from home. Never. I, I, I was at home eight days in the first quarter of, of 2020. Eight days. Now, since, you know, end of March, I've been home every day. Uh, and other than finding things I'd like to repair at home, which come to the surface every day, <laughs> I think it's this incredibly interesting new organizational structure that our uh, that HR leaders are wrestling with. It's it's one of those things where, and you know, I know people have made this point, but experts have been saying for at least a decade, you know, how important flexibility is um, for your the well-being of your employees, how valuable it can be. Yes, there's concerns, but they can be mitigated. And some people took that very seriously, and a, a lot more people said, oh, well, you know, that's nice, but we need our employees in our office. And, uh, well, you know, they were wrong, and they were forced to confront that right away. And, you know, to get back to the point you're, you were making earlier about action. Action was decidedly required, um, regardless of the beliefs of the leadership, regardless of tradition, which is often the number one thing pointed to when we say, well, we don't do remote work because we haven't, and this is just how we do it. Right. You know, right. um, I don't know. I, I'm kind of curious as to, cause you know, I know how I feel about being home, which is that I've always been a proponent of remote work and I feel so much more comfortable here. Um, I just, you know, when that kind of situation is forced on people, forcing them to act, you know, how ready were they and how did they do? Yeah, so I don't think many of us were ready. I'm fortunate that most of my career has been in technology. And I don't know if you've ever managed software developers, but they'll show (laughs) up at midnight or at noon or, you know, three in the morning and, and it's round the clock development. So for me my normal has always included some level of remote work or flexible work, um, or at least compassion around, um, around individuals who are creative and inspired at the strangest times of the day. But um, if you'll bear with me, I, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but I'm a bit of a storyteller. And I had this in great fortune to compete as a, a ballroom dancer. Um, I know. <laughs> and I had this great partner. His name was Igor Ishakov. And he's this brilliant Russian dancer, right? And he taught me about music and movement and emotions and all those things that you see on Dancing with the Stars. But strangely, you've just made me think about one lesson that he taught me that has really become my leadership mantra. And maybe a, I think it's applicable right now. And so maybe my lesson is going to be a to take ballroom dancing. But I had this really terrible, I'm not a dancer. I had this terrible habit. I'd get ahead of the music. I'd get ahead of him. And, and what would happen is you get very discombobulated, right? And at some point, Igor stopped me and said, okay, Anita, I see the fear in your eyes, which really set me off, right? I see the fear in your <laughs> eyes. And I'm telling you that when the world is spinning, 
and you're feeling unstable, all you have to do is put your heels down, pause, and then pivot. And, and I heard those words and I thought, oh my goodness, that's every management lesson I ever needed to hear because <laughs> the world starts spinning. You don't want to show the fear in your eyes. You've got to figure out what you do. And so the first thing that you should do, which goes back to my sort of leadership model, right? First thing you do is put your heels down, pause for a minute, think for a second, and then pivot and then act. And, it, and so his lesson, I think, in the midst of COVID really showed that when you don't have a choice, if you're going to fall, <laughs> you better put your peel, heels <laughs> down and, and figure out how do you, how do you turn? So in, in many ways, that's what's happened societally. We have argued for decades. Oh my gosh, Jim, my first technology project was with American general. And I worked with the, this guy, Tom Tynan from Accenture. And they said, go figure out some new method for us to do meetings because this travel is so expensive. So we hmm. came back with a video conferencing solution. They laughed at us, told us it was culturally inappropriate. It was preposterous, right? But there wasn't really a need. Even the bottom line, expensive meetings couldn't drive that adoption. But now, I mean, Zoom and GoTo, hey, I've got a Zoom now, I've got a GoTo. I mean, they've become part of our vernacular. So what drives culture change? It's that rip the Band-Aid off fast. We have to react as humans. We can't think about it and got, get stuck in analysis paralysis because people literally are dying. So it, we are capable of doing this. We just get caught up in the, the nonsense. And that's why I, you know, I have this enormous respect for our thought leadership. But if you don't act, back to Aristotle, if you don't act, if you don't, if you don't pivot, you will fail. Well, with, with Aristotle, we don't, <laughs> we don't know if he acted, right? All we have is his words. <laughs> All we have are his words, <laughs> which <laughs> is counterintuitive to everything I'm saying. I realize. I did say he was the greatest thought leader. <laughs> <laughs> I, couldn't, I can't help but, but poke the bear a little bit. That's fine. No, I, I actually think about it all the time because, yeah, so I mean, Anita, you're talking about thought leadership and you're choosing the greatest thought leader to demonstrate why you think people should act. But, um, but you know, I, I also think about the, you know, the, the artists and the religious leaders of the Roman Empire and everybody who, who thought. But I, I, for me, even Aristotle and Plato, I, you know, it gets mired down in the in the words. But if you are saying, if, if we're saying together that in order to drive survival, then we have to act, we have to change, we have to work together, we have to commit, then thinking about it isn't going to get us anywhere. Thinking too long about it isn't going to get us anywhere. And I think that's where, I mean, honestly, I think that's where people have tried to, pen, to pin HR into a pigeonhole that almost says, you know, we're going to think for you. And then when we tell you to act, here's the transactions upon which you need to act. And I think this pivot around HR is, no, we're the human behavior leaders, the cultural leaders, the social leaders, the empathetic leaders. And now is the time to iterate around what HR is bringing to the table. I think it's a, a very interesting time for HR. 
because now they have to deal with financial well-being. Well, whoever thought financial well-being would sit in your EAP programs? Right? I mean, it's one of those things that always seemed like a personal problem that people didn't want to get involved in. Yeah. Uh, even even at organizations that are underpaying their employees. Yep. Absolutely. And it's it was taboo, right? So yeah. I don't know how you grew up. We didn't grow up. I didn't grow up talking about money at the dinner table or anything That's like that. That's what they said. It's rude to talk about money. It's weird. And God forbid you would never talk about it at, going into the workplace. Even if you just you didn't pay your utility bill and your lights were out, you're putting on a happy face and going to work. You're not talking about you know wearing a big hello sticker on your lapel that says, hi, my credit score is 570. Right. It's not. (laughs) But but the reality is, as you started off saying, we have 40 percent of American households that earn less than fifty thousand dollars a year. So 40 percent of our households are in what we think of as low to medium, low to moderate income status. Right. And of that population, 25 percent have been furloughed because of covid. So how is this not a societal crisis? And how is it not something that employers need to lean into? I I worked at a bank, and I will tell you that I didn't know about 401ks or how they all worked or should I be doing it. I was a kid with an advanced degree, and never once throughout all of my education did I have a class on financial literacy. I had accounting classes, but nobody told me anything about budgeting, all the practical stuff that I needed. Nobody told me about a 401k until the CIO pulled me aside and said, why are you leaving free money on the table? (laughs) And I'm like, what do you mean free money? (laughs) I never leave free money on the table, right? But if you don't have somebody who's going to do that, you, you have no idea what you're getting into. And so with, with, the, with COVID, it's just really pointed out the financial fragility that most of us have, right? Because even there's this really interesting statistic. We've been doing a lot of um, uh, proprietary research on, on the data. And do you know that 28% of the people making $168,000 a year live paycheck to paycheck? So this isn't an LMI issue. It's crazy. It's crazy. You look at, you know, Housing markets and rental markets, you know, they're basically unaffordable by any individual on most of the pay that most people get in the country. Right. You know, so you have an increase in groups of people having to live together in smaller places, you know, and at the same time, the health of the housing market is measured by how expensive homes are. Yeah. Which is something that, you know, my wife and I have been looking for a house for a while. We were on the market before COVID and now, you know, in Connecticut, there's no houses available. But, you know, you always hear in the radio or or in the newspaper, oh, the housing market is is uh, failing. And I say, oh, well, then maybe I can finally afford a house. Right. You know, because when it's good, it's not good for me. Right. That's <laughs> and that's how so many things are oriented. They're oriented towards how how the economy with a capital E is doing. You know, we look at the Dow Jones. That's only 500 companies, you know, or, or a, handful, a handful of the companies compared to what we have in the country and how they're doing. You know, there's always this, and this particular crisis is very, very interesting because I lived through the 2008 crisis. I was looking for jobs. 
when that was when that happened. And then everything shut down. But this time it's like some some industries are booming. Some people are hiring. A lot of people are hiring uh, just as other ones are, are crumbling. And it's what it's really proven is that the overall health of the economy, just like the overall health of a housing market, really has very little to do with your everyday person and has almost no meaning to them. I think you're 100% dead on because... Um, my personal resilience isn't tied to GDP, right? So, um, so while I can appreciate what the economists are saying, um, at the end of the day, I've I've got to figure out how do does Anita Incorporated run her P and L, and mm. where's my operating capital, and how do I access operating capital, and is my salary just another form of me? as a small business owner managing my my cash flow. So that's what I find so exciting, um, if you don't mind it, just about salary finance, because sure. I was I was with a nonprofit. I was president of a nonprofit that did financial inclusion and empowerment for five years. And my frustration was that you can counsel people and educate people and get them so far. But if there's not a tool in place that they could then embrace to either um, access capital when they had a shortfall or access affordable capital when they had a financial uh, need or rewrite their student loan debt or get rid of high interest predatory loans, if that wasn't there, then they were stuck in this perpetual debt cycle. And, and, you know, that's very much aligned with cycles of poverty. So what what I saw in the UK was this very unique model that allowed uh, employees to borrow against their salaries at low interest rates, hmm. which fascinated me because it really plays into this, this metaphor of me as incorporated with a business and using my salary as my operating capital because I'm at least two weeks, you know, Two weeks of that salary that you're holding back should technically be my earned wage, right? Um, so how do I use my earned wage and how do I access at lower rates? And that's what salary finance does. So uh, as an organization, we partner up and it's free. So here's the other ops. We took away all the associated uh, costs of a benefit, traditional costs of a benefit away and said, Let's drive it from social purpose. Let's try to get people from, you know, a, a, a struggling place of financial well-being into a prospering place of financial well-being and give them some tools to learn. So there's education platforms, but there's a zillion education platforms that, uh, that an, an HR leader right. could embrace. And then let's also give them the guidance that says, even if you've got a 500 credit score, you do not have to turn to a predatory lender who's going to charge you. 400% or even a thousand by the time compound interest kicks in to borrow, you know, a thousand bucks, borrow it from yourself essentially. And, uh, and then we keep the interest rates uh, extremely low because we service the loan ourselves. And, uh, and that lets us do a lot of really interesting things. So if somebody's in trouble and maybe they've been furloughed, we had a lot of active borrowers who were furloughed uh, at the beginning of COVID and so we just, because we service the loans, put them on payment holidays and said, go buy your groceries, 
Don't worry about your loan payment. We're not going to turn you into the credit bureau for you know delinquent payments. You get back on your feet. And once you get back on your feet, we'll figure this all out and figure out, you know, new terms or whatever. We can do that as empathetic mm-hmm. lenders because our purpose is a social purpose. But now think about translate that into inside of HR. Now HR leaders are thinking about financial well-being and salary-linked loans and potentially earned income advances and financial well-being tools and how does this all impact mental health and the complexity of the CHRO role and the you know global benefits role has really grown exponentially with the crisis. But I would argue that the greatest action they could take now is helping people find their financial footing, whether that's with salary finance or with anybody. Helping people find financial footing is is critical to. Um, to evening out, I think, what's happening here, and actually probably worldwide, at least our, our UK counterparts are telling me it's not unlike what's happening in the UK. So I think we need to get past this idea that money's always been a taboo topic and we shouldn't talk about it into the workplace to, okay, now the thought leaders and the action leaders, we all need to get together and figure out how do you dispel all this, make it safe, to have these conversations and then implement appropriate financial well-being, you know, frameworks that make sense to your population based upon what you're seeing in your population. I, I just looked at, uh, we do these financial fitness reports, Jim, that are really great. So we can take a snapshot of an organization and tell you of your employees, how many are delinquent or just had repossessions or How much student loan debt do they have? And we can take a picture of what's happening in terms of debt and savings and and credit. And I just did one for education. uh, And I was shocked. K-12 education. These are our teachers, right? 20% of them have accounts that are delinquent. 20%. So they're struggling with everything else. One in 90 is at the risk of losing their homes. Wow. So you start looking at this data and you think, oh my gosh, we have to lean in around financial well-being because it's affecting mental health. And it's affecting, the. in, in that case, in the case of teachers, it's affecting students and communities and families. And, and that is an essential, that is an essential job. Yeah, it's also, you know, very destructive to people's lives when they're in financial hardship. Uh, You know, I've read studies about the amount of mental energy, and I've lived this too, that you have to spend to make sure that you've got what you need. You know, um, when I was younger and I was, you know, basically dirt poor, you'd be short $100 at the end of the week that you need to pay your rent, you know, and you have to sit there and, and spend a ton of energy and, and finding that extra little job, you know, who, you know, basically hustling to put it, to put it lightly, to go find that money. And it's, that's time you're not spending relaxing, you know, uh, solving important problems, you know, connecting with your family, it distracts you at work. It distracts you everywhere, and it's um, it's it's kind of 
<laughs> depressing how little amount of money can make such a huge difference. You know, there were so many pits that I got dug into in my life where a couple hundred dollars would solve it. And, yeah. you know, that's, you know, like you're talking about earlier with the predatory loans. I mean, that's the impetus behind someone going to one of those places is that they're just a little bit behind. You know, I would spend a lot of time thinking about time specifically because the money's tied to time. You know, you get paid every two weeks. You run out of money in a week and a half. Now you got to wait, you know, yeah. wait for that, wait for it to come in. And if you can just give somebody a chance to catch up once or give them a little bit of extra capital somehow, they can solve their own problem. It'll be a huge relief. You get a better worker. That's for sure, because they're not going to be obsessing about uh, what a dire situation they're in. And it can make a huge difference, you know. And meanwhile, I'd be watching the news and reading about, you know, Warren Buffett and all these huge millionaires and billionaires. You know, the the amount of money that would it would take to have changed my life at that point versus what percentage of their income that would represent would be laughably small. You know, <laughs> I grew up like you did. I, we didn't, we had no money and at times didn't even have a home. And uh, I, I still remember these giant mayonnaise jars that my mom would empty, you know, all the change in her purse into. And then the, we would squirrel that away, you know, pennies mm. and nickels and dimes, squirrel it away because the um, expenses were often cyclical, right? So beginning yes. of school year and Christmas or birthdays. And so the mayonnaise jar, when one of those periods came where we just knew there was going to be more month at the end of our money, so to speak, um, <laughs> we all four <laughs> kids and mom and dad, we'd sit around a table, we would dump out those coins. And I, you're you're probably much younger than I am, but You'd have to put them in these little wrappers from the bank, yeah, these little paper wrappers. I used and you to do would, that too. Yeah, you would create these tubes of money. And I felt so rich at that point, <laughs> right? Because we had all these tubes of money and it became ceremonial to go to the bank as a kid. As my parents, I can only imagine what that felt like. Because to your point, a few, we were taking in, you know, not even a hundred dollars. So at each time when we would dump that and how do you make that work? And so when, when we looked at the data, um, at salary finance for people on the job, we found that those people who are suffering from financial stress, there's at least three hours a week, at least three hours a week where they're worried about either, you know, getting the change in the mayonnaise jar or like you say, finding the, the side hustle to get that extra hundred or figuring out how am I going to negotiate with Georgia power in my case, or whatever the Connecticut equivalent is to, you know, delay my bill. And still, still I need to generate income on the job. And I think that we have ignored that for so long, but people bring those struggles to the workplace. And if we had simple solutions, which really are quite simple, interestingly, um, that we could put in place to help them. Uh, Harvard did a study of salary linked 
loans and the impact on retention. And it improved retention by 28%. So one of the key metrics that we worry about as organizations is retention and all the associated rehiring and training costs and impacts to culture. Well, if you just help people <laughs> access money when they needed it, <laughs> you know, then you're going to affect retention by 28%. It's, it's so true. I mean, do you remember when all these studies are coming out about millennials telling everybody that millennials didn't value income as much as they valued other perks and benefits? Yes, of course. Which me and my many millennial friends all <laughs> thought was hilarious. And, you know, one of the, being in my particular position where I'm at now, you know, I... I regularly read articles and tender articles and talk to people about all these different benefits and all these different tactics, almost all of which are designed to not pay your employees more. Right. It's like, what can we do to get better engagement right. um, besides pay people more? And so the answer <laughs> is pay them more and respect them. Yes. And those can be the same thing because really it comes down to respect and if a company isn't paying you what you're worth, then they're not respecting you. They're not respecting you. I tell this to every leader that I know. You, you just maybe you just need to take ballroom dance too, Jim, because you're right on <laughs> with um, everything that you're saying. Because I, I think that you know the way you demonstrate action is with authenticity, and not just authenticity of yourself. Although there are many leaders that I have a great deal of respect for who are authentic leaders. Uh, even running huge companies, right? But it's authenticity with the individuals who work for you. So how do you value them? And I would argue that if you looked at your compensation across the board and made sure that people had a living wage, and not just a living wage from the political standpoint, but a living wage based upon what they're bringing to the table every day, that's mm. authenticity. And compassion and empathy, that's authenticity. And, you know, nurturing love not fear that's authenticity because if you come to work afraid of your i don't even know what student loans are what the costs anymore but um insane it's i'm sure it's five hundred dollars a month or depending i guess on where you went to school right you could have a thousand dollar a month bill that it could be more than that. that so thank god i didn't have to do that because there's no boxes on org charts that say i can't wait to hire an anthropologist right but um, so if I had to deal with that now, oh my God. Um, but yeah, but, but if you're not looking and treating the whole self and diagnosing your population from that perspective, and then applying the very simple triggers of compensation, communication, compassion, right? Basically three C's or whatever I just made up there, but you, you need to be thinking about, about listening. You know, my mom always said that you've got, you know, two ears and one mouth because you should listen more than you talk. And that's really what's happening right now with COVID. And it delights me because it's forcing leaders to listen. My hope is that as they listen, that they will also act. Because I do agree with you, we have to fix the compensation. Base compensation has to be adjusted. And if COVID hasn't pointed that out. And if furloughs haven't pointed that out, and if, you know, unemployment hasn't pointed that out, then I don't know what will. Well said. I mean, 
the first thing that happened in most organizations was that in response to what happened was that they fired people and gave people less money. Right. And if it weren't for that early stimulus package, which helped many, but not everybody, um, I mean, who knows what we'd be like, what situation we'd be in now, how much worse it would be. And the, the ironic thing is that I always, you know, just makes my blood boil really is when I hear employers talking about complaining that their employees don't want to come back because they were making more money on unemployment than they than they were at their jobs, like that was the employee's fault. Right. <laughs> uh, it's, well, but they didn't just impact short term, right? They also cut matches to 401ks. So mm. now you're impacting not just the individual immediately, but their long-term wealth. So you've cut salaries back, reduced them by at least 10% across the board. You've furloughed some people who are primarily in vulnerable populations. And then for those who remain, you say, okay, we're reducing your salary, not matching your 401k any longer, but really we value you. You know, coming back to the thought leadership, there's that mired, we're kind of mired in thought and words and thinking. But right now, we just need cowboys. I think we're at, what is it the Air Force call it? DEFCON 1, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. uh, their description of that is cocked pistol, right? High alert, high readiness, need to do something. We're kind of at DEFCON 1 in financial well-being. And, And I, you know, we need to set the safety on that 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 cocked pistol of the air force it's it's frightening but it is but i still think i mean the good side i'm i'm an eternal optimist the good side <laughs> is oh my gosh what a wonderful shining light it's put on hr right from Absolutely. moving them to a seat at the table the dni professionals are actually involved now in defining supply chains that should have happened 20 years ago Right? It should have. It should have happened 20 years ago. We actually are talking about social injustice, which, by the way, now that I know your background, I think is heavily rooted in economic injustice. So Absolutely. let's start dealing with economic justice, which will ultimately translate into social justice and inclusion. Let's finish what Dr. King tried to do with the Poor People's Campaign when everybody of all classes, religions, colors, ethnicity sat around a table trying to solve social issues. So for me, I'm optimistic that, um, you know, despite the loss of our leaders like C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, that there are incredible leaders coming forward to drive social change. But HR is now in the, in the a seat. We have a seat. And so let's not waste it. Let's put our heels down, like Igor said. Put your heels down, pause for a second, and pivot and drive this change. So I, I am, I'm actually more excited than, than um, pessimistic about the future. And I, I think it really gives us a chance to demonstrate that we can be human and compassionate and deal with things like proper wages and rewarding people and and being, you know, inclusive with our employee population and giving people a voice that they didn't have around their benefits instead of, you know, instead of HR being mother, 
and telling you what benefits you're going to get. How about giving me a voice that says, I really need to be able to borrow some money at cheap rates because I can't make it through the month. And oh, by the way, I've got two weeks of earned income. How about I just borrow against that? Because that'll help me pay my light bill or or give me an, uh, a mechanism to rewrite my student loan debt or forgive my student loan debt or you invest in my student loan debt. Let's, let's start talking about true financial well-being or your generation, Jim, is going to be burdened with more debt than than, you know, than my generation right before you. It's very true. Well, Anita, I think that is all the time that we have for now, well, but it's really you. been a pleasure speaking with you. I've enjoyed this. This is great. And good luck. Stay in touch. <laughs> Absolutely. Listeners, remember that if you enjoyed today's episode, you should consider attending the HR Daily Advisors online educational experience called HR Now, which will be held on September 30th. That event will include a number of roundtable discussions, one of which will be led by Anita and is called Why Financial Inclusion Belongs on Your DNI Agenda. I have provided a link where you can learn more in the description. We're always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR work should cover next. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast, or if you have any thoughts or concerns, feel free to leave them there. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.